0: Welcome to The Beloved Community, resources for activism. The Beloved Community is heard on the second Friday of every month at 9 a.m. on KBOO. I'm John Schock. I also host a weekly show, Progressive Spirit, ProgressiveSpirit.net. And yes, I'm a clergy person. I'm a Christian atheist minister at Southminster Presbyterian in Beaverton, Oregon. I have two guests today. I've met both of them since I've been in Portland at gatherings in which religion has been discussed and explored critically. Our culture and the world is in transition in many ways, and religion or spirituality or whatever you want to call it is one of those areas that is in transition, especially away from organized religion to other avenues. As such, these various avenues are resources for resistance to oppression and for positive activism in our world. My first guest is Karen Garst. Karen is the author of Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion. Her website is faithlessfeminist.com.
1: I do think eventually, um, let's say that religion were to go away today, I think we can find things to do together that help each other.
0: In the second half of the show, I speak with Rabbi Brian. He is in Portland, and he does most of his work online at Religion Outside the Box, R O T
2: B dot O R G. You can't define what God is. You can only define what God isn't, because the idea of God is transcendent. And when you get that God is beyond word, beyond anything, and you think about the people who are who are so certain about God, I,
1: they. I'm certain that they're wrong.
0: Well, let's get to it. Welcome, Karen Garst, the faithless feminist, to the beloved community.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John. I appreciate it.
0: Um, You mentioned uh, in the introduction to your book, the uh, four atheist horsemen of the apocalypse, Richard Dawkins, Daniel Dennett, Sam Harris, and the late Christopher Hitchens, all wrote books on atheism around 10 years ago. And, but you say there's a shortage of women atheists who are also speaking out. So why is that, and how do you, how do you hope your book and website is going to change that?
1: Well, and I started this project, I um, looked on Amazon and got the 100 best-selling books on atheism, and at that point in time there were six written by women. And I feel personally, as a woman, I've been very welcomed into the community. It's a kind of a small community of activists, if you will, uh, one of my uh, mentors, Dr. Peter bogosian has written a book, *The Manual for Creating Atheists*, and and um, he's been helping me introduce me to people. I have Richard Dawkins who uh, yeah, wrote a wrote blurb a nice. yeah. <laughs> for the book. Um, I've been to the Reason Rally, Women in Secularism Conference, and uh, people have been very supportive. I think, however. If you look at what happened 10, 15 years ago, these were people who were already established in a field more or less at that time dominated by men. I mean, Richard Dawkins had a, had a huge reputation already. Sam Harris was finishing his doctorate on neuroscience and Daniel Dennett, a, a philosopher. Um, so that may have, may have been part of it. Um, I do think even today there are many more men who are activists and speaking out. And one of the reasons I wrote my book was to encourage women to speak out. Because if you want to say who's subjugated by religion, uh, women much more than men. Right. And, and that's
0: uh, what we want to talk about. So talk a little bit about the contributors of your book. How did you uh, get connected <laughs> with them? And, and uh, how, what would you say that their stories have in common?
1: Well, all of them um, have left religion. I started out by looking toward friends who I knew. You know, we're in Oregon, so a lot of my friends were already atheists, Mm -hmm. and asked them if they would write about their experiences. Then I reached out to the groups um, in Oregon, such as the uh, Humanists of Greater Portland, the Center for Inquiry, um, there was a Women Atheist Reading Group, and I went to those, talked about the project, and got some people involved, and then I reached out through social media. So I have a variety of women from 18 to 70 when they wrote, Um, different races, um, all in a Judeo-Christian background. But some of them were born, one was born in Africa, one was born in Peru, Um, several immigrated to the United States uh, from European countries and had more of a secular upbringing, if you will. Um, One of my friends, Jill, she said that when you live in England and you ask directions, somebody said, oh, it's yeah, it's next to the brew pub over there, the lucky lab. And uh, when she came to the United States, she lived in the South, and everyone said, well, it's two blocks from the Presbyterian Church. And she goes, like, I know where the Presbyterian Church is. So there's, <laughs> some, there's some culture shock going on there.
0: Oh, that's right. So you have about, uh, I think there, are how many, were there 30? 22. More? 22, yeah. And uh, fascinating stories. Um, some stories pretty harsh.
1: Yes. People usually comment about the first story by Ann Wilcox. And she was raised as a fundamentalist. And I think some of the key things she says is that she wasn't just taught that she committed sin. she was taught that she was sin. And she developed this debilitating perfectionism. So everything she did, she kind of thought the devil was watching over her. And even thirty years after leaving religion, she had these, you know these feelings. But she wrote the essay, and she did a lot of writing after a deconversion. And she, uh, about a year later, after she had written the essay, told me that she was at the beach sitting on a rock and she had an epiphany. She said, I'm okay, I'm an okay person. And she felt good about herself probably for the first time in her life. And she said, writing the essay helped. So that made me mm. feel really good. And I think um, people, men and women, look to role models. Um, When I was growing up, the role models I had for women in careers were mostly teachers, nurses, and secretaries. And I think it's harder to say, oh, I want to be an astronaut. (laughs) Of course, when I was born, there weren't astronauts, but (laughs) um, if you can't see yourself in that role. So this book allows women to say, wow, you know, she did it, I can too, or I've had a similar circumstance, and they can identify with people. And that's why I think it's important for more women to speak out um, who have left religion, who have had um, experiences in religion that they can share.
0: You know, Daniel Dennett talked about why he decided to Write the book. Uh, and he said it was because, you know, he didn't used to, I mean, he'd go, he didn't believe, but he'd go and sing Christmas carols and, and whatnot. But it came a point in which um, the culture at large was being adversely affected by religion. And he felt that he needed to be more outspoken about atheism. And I'm thinking you felt that way similarly too, right? <laughs> yes. You, you ran and- into uh, uh, the Hobby Lobby, wasn't it? The kind of yes.
1: And I was I was raised as a Lutheran in North Dakota. Uh, everyone I knew went to church; it was just what you did. I would have had no social life if I wouldn't have had Luther League, and actually went to a Lutheran college, Concordia College in Moorhead, Minnesota, which was pretty liberal. I mean, when you your first religion class talks about the different oral strains of the Old Testament, okay, <laughs> you know that's going to be pretty liberal. Um, but my turning point was really reading Bishop John Shelby Spong's book, Resurrection, Myth, and Reality. And once I let go of the resurrection, I was pretty much an atheist. But my husband and I just raised our son secular. We didn't um, join any uh, secular groups. We just slept in on Sunday And then I was having lunch with a friend of mine who's an author, and she said, you should write a book. Well, it happened to be two days after the Supreme Court issued its 5-4 decision in Burwell v. Hobby Lobby, which said that this privately held company did not have to provide certain forms of birth control, mostly abortifacients, um, under the Affordable Care Act because of their religious views. And I went, wait, a corporation can have religious views? And that was based on some previous decisions that um, the court had ruled on. And I was really angry about that because I came of age as a second wave feminist in the 60s and 70s. I remember before there was birth control. I remember before abortion was legal. And we don't need to go back there. It was, it was a terrible time. And so that really got me motivated um, to write a book and share the opinions of women uh, who have left religion, and I think you're very right that what you said about Daniel Dennett, um, religion has taken a role in our political life, I would almost say, like never before. I mean, I think if you talk to Thomas Jefferson about what's happening today, he would really be appalled.
0: Karen Garst is my guest. She's the author of Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion, and uh, her website is Faithless feminist.com, uh, one of the articles that you wrote on your uh, website just, um, I think, a couple of days ago, and this is this is your quote at the end. I'd like, you to, I'd, I'd like to, I'm going to read this to you mm-hmm. and let you respond. It says, you wrote, maybe it's time for women to say no to religion and to recognize the Judeo-Christian tradition, not as divinely inspired, but as a means for men to dominate women, for men to secure property and power, and for women to keep their place in the private sphere. In the Western world today, women have an opportunity to be equal to men, in the workplace, in the public sphere, and at home, times have changed. As women, let's acknowledge the role religion played in the patriarchal society of old as we work to create a society that values men and women equally. Let's acknowledge it's time to let go of religion. So my question uh, to you is how um, – This there's a lot there. <laughs> How how did you come to that? You did a lot of study on this.
1: Well, I decided when I wrote the book, um, decided to write the book, that I needed to do some research. So I went back and read a lot about uh, religion, read a lot about mythology, and um, atheism as well. And what's really funny is my dissertation was on cultural reproduction that primarily focused on the school system. But how does the school system repeat the economic system? How does it do that? And the author that I chose to write about, his name is Pierre Bourdieu, who's French, uh, and I spoke French, so that's why my (laughs) advisor suggested I write about him. But he talks about this word called habitus, and it's all the things that make us who we are, whether it's our economic status, whether it's religion, whether it's um, ethnicity, whether it's race, all of those things that make Karen, Karen. And um, unpacking that and finding out where those come from is just as applicable to religion as it is to my study of education. And I believe that religion is the last cultural barrier to gender equality. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't some other barriers there. Um, And usually, if you want to go back far enough, I blame it on agriculture.
0: (laughs) Oh, well, sure, the uh, agricultural revolution.
1: If you look at hunter-gatherer societies today, mm-hmm. they're much more egalitarian. And if you look back, yes, the men did the hunt, and they went in the back of the cave and painted the pictures, and the shamans taught the young boys how to hunt. But the women were gatherers. They very well may have been the first to understand what seeds were, uh, some medicinal property of herbs. But as I said, if you look at those kind of societies today, they're, they're much more sharing and egalitarian. Once you start either herding or agriculture, then you have the issue of private property. I mean, it didn't start as, oh, let's all have this big property and share it. It, it may have, but it developed quickly into, this is my land, uh, this is not your land, and I'm going to defend it, and I'm going to fortify it, and I'm going to fight against it. Well, what comes along with that is, I want to pass this property to my son. I want to do all this work so that he gets a head start. Um, not my daughter, but my son. So it's very important that the woman I marry be a virgin so that I know that it's my son, because that's important to me. Um, and then she can't commit adultery, or I wouldn't know that it's my son. So you start this progression of ownership of property, and women start to be property, and they're subordinate. Now, women may have originally done agriculture when it was hoeing, and but once you start to get into something um, larger and more mechanical um, with horses and different things like that. I believe um, most people think that men men took over at that time. And it, the beliefs that people had, there wasn't a distinction between government and religion. It People would have gone, what? What's the difference between, how would that be separated? Because the rulers were either um, divine kings or they were the local chieftain who was also the the priest of the religion— um, so those things were very much uh, together.
0: And this is the the legacy today, is that we've, as you mentioned, we get habitus. We are indoctrinated into our own culture. And then a lot of that culture lifts up whatever religion it might be. Uh, Christianity, usually, we're talking about now in the, in the United States in a fundamentalist view. And the Bible is, you know, the Word of God. And so when the Bible has these stories that are basically products of the agricultural revolution, uh, which women are property, people think that that is divine truth. And it's uh, it's one thing to have a book say all of that stuff, but it's another thing to have the layer of um, divine truth be put on it. Is, 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 would you say that that's kind of the issue?
1: Well, I think that's part of it. And certainly when I grew up, um, we didn't have a Sunday sermon on Jephthah. And yeah. as you remember, he, was, he said to God, you know, if you let me beat the Ammonites, I, I'll, I'll give you the first thing that walks out of my cabin. And the first thing that walks out of his house is his virgin daughter. And as opposed to um, when you had Abraham willing to sacrifice Isaac and then God intervenes, God didn't intervene. And the girl goes up and pines away for two months and come back and is, is sacrificed. Um, but they didn't talk about those things. They didn't talk about, um, you know, giving the women of battle to the men, you know, killing the married ones, taking the young virgins. nobody talked about that in church. It was just the good stuff. Um, and we learned stories. We learned about Noah's Ark. Uh, we learned about Genesis and they didn't spend a lot of time blaming Eve, Uh, they would move more toward the New Testament. And uh, even there, um, they wouldn't talk about the negative things.
0: Yeah, I mean, (laughs) Abraham and Sarah, I've often thought, you know, Abraham goes off and sacrifices his son. I wonder, did Sarah have an opinion?
1: Well, I wrote about that. I said, (laughs) where's Sarah? I think that's really the the final break with any matriarchal line. When you have a situation— that's a cornerstone i mean he's basically they don't call him abrahamic religions for nothing and you completely exclude the woman she doesn't know what's happening she's not consulted she's not there that's when it's true patriarchy
0: and it's all about abraham's seed and the metaphor for their biology was that the male planted the seed in the soil Right, And uh, the soil didn't really contribute to the identity mm-hmm. of the seed or the offspring. It was just the, the ground, and uh, it was really the, the male's seed that needed to pass on. So there was a, a whole understanding of philosophy and biology, I guess you can say, that was patriarchal from the very beginning and that goes all the way through.
1: Well, and I think what's interesting in the books that I have been reading is if you go back to the Paleolithic, you'll notice that a lot of those figurines are women, Mm -hmm. uh, the vast majority of them, and we'll probably never know what they were used for. Were they used for the woman, you know, when she had contractions, did she hold on really, you know, um, to get through it? Um, Did somebody do it in reverence for the fact that she was going to give birth to a child? But those figurines aren't found in the back where the paintings are the animals they killed where the shaman was they're found in the front in the hearth and there's even some hypothesis that that they may have been found once in a a birthing room they're identified an area that may have been used for that we don't know but i think what's amazing about the paleolithic and the fact that we know there was worship of a female divine is can you imagine when a man goes to battle and gets um stabbed by the horns of an auric He dies, he bleeds, he dies. But this woman bleeds every month and doesn't die. She has a child and because the placenta comes out, there's blood, she doesn't die. And they knew a lot about the cycles of the moon because this is what they learned about the earth. And here we have this woman who has 13 menstrual cycles, just like 13 lunar cycles. So, and they were very dependent on the cycles of earth. Um, They were very dependent on um, when, certainly once seeds started, you know, those coming up every year. So having a feminine divine made a lot of sense. And then somewhere along the line, there's a male deity came in and they had pantheons for a while. And then, you know, not only in the abrahamic tradition but in many other cultures a male deity took over Um, enuma elish which is the myth for the babylonians the uh, one of the male gods marduk says to the others look if you make me head god i'll get rid of tiamat who's the female and they say okay and they cut her up in pieces just like the leviathan in the bible Mm -hmm. so um, Israelites were exposed to that, but it was happening all over um, that men were taking over as the sole deity, and then the women were gone from the pantheons.
0: And there was a, a tradition. I think William Dever's uh, talks about uh, that Yahweh was uh, married, <laughs> has his consort was Ashtar, a yeah. female deity, and actually that was very well in popular religion. Uh, they they went along well, but it was the the priests and the prophets and whatever the male that made all of this idea that no there's only one god or get rid of all of these other things and so there was a real yes battle there
1: at um i'm not going to be able to say this right but aruna Kidjat, or uh, i can't really say the space the space farewell but they found a a huge pot and on that pot are some figures and above it is written yahweh and his asherah Hmm. so uh and i've read william deaver's work and it's fascinating but even if you look at the old testament um, there's a passage where the women are saying, we're going to go back and worship the queen of heaven. When we were worshiping being the queen of heaven and making cakes for her, things were great. Now they're terrible. Um, so we're going to go back to doing that. And they're in front of, in front of the temple. So it, it's not very difficult to see from the biblical text itself, which has survived, um, that there were some female entities there. And Asherah, What's interesting is a share was worshipped often in nature with a pole or a tree. And a lot of the female goddesses were associated with snakes um, because of their rejuvenation, that they came out of the ground, that they shed their skin. You will see through a lot of early cultures there's this snake. Well, and what does Genesis do? It takes the tree, it takes the snake, (laughs) and puts them down. So it's a way of putting down that female deity, whether it's a sharer or somebody else, and making all of those symbols that were associated with a female um, divine bad.
0: Karen Garst is my guest. She's the author of Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion, and she also keeps the website faithlessfeminist.com. Okay, let's go here. Let me me push back a little bit. What about liberal religion? uh... unitarians let's say secular jews christian atheists like myself <laughs> are we kind of consorting with the enemy by participating in organized religion even as we engage in critical thinking like yourself
1: well i applaud your courage and it was great meeting you um, there was somebody else there who was uh... at the seminar i met and she's one of my best friends now so thank you very much uh-huh. and it was fun talking to the people in your congregation And one of the women said, you know, I grew up in this church, but I'm a lesbian. And I went away before when the church was not going to support LGBTQ people. Mm -hmm. And now that they do, I came back, and it's community to me. I like the songs. I like being here. I like the people. So I think we're in transition with people like you who keep that sense of community going. And there's plenty of things from the Christian tradition that you can find that are positive. There's plenty of things from a humanistic viewpoint that you can talk about. Um, so I think it's a it's a it's a transition, and I don't think it's really consorting with the enemy. That's that's how culture changes slowly sometimes, rapidly at other times. Um, so I think it's it's a good thing to create the sense of community because it it is that. You know, the word religion is from religio bind us together, and that is what community is.
0: Yeah, and I wanted to talk about that. we talk about religion, what what would you say is a definition of religion?
1: Well, I think religion, um, I would have to say most of it involves believing in some kind of supernatural entity, and that can be from you know, the deist perspective, somebody created the earth, but they're not active anymore, to a theist, yes, God's active, to some real fundamentalist, which is I hear God every day. Um, But when you look back at early man, and all the terror they faced, whether it was a volcano, whether it was a murdering tribe, um, that gave them comfort. And they have found graves of Neanderthal where they actually buried their dead. So, our sense of what are we here? Why are we here? What's the purpose? What happens after we die are very, very fundamental. And people created answers for that to get by, to get by every day and say, I can survive this hurricane, I can survive um, this devastation to our city. Um, I believe that God is with us and we will triumph in the end or we will go to heaven. My youngest daughter just died, but she's going to be in a better place. And people still say that today. It's comfort.
0: And it's how, like you say, how we explain things that happen. I mean, if you don't know, you you imagine um, entities, agents doing kinds of things. And now we are moving, as you mentioned, to transition into uh, a more scientific understanding of how things happen and of course that pushes uh religious explanations back um and yet they still are so pervasive aren't they Mm -hmm. i mean uh and 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 i kind of wonder if if there's if there is a, a way to mend religion or does it need to be ended
1: well i think um you know, like I said, people like you and uh, Greta Vosper in Canada who openly acknowledge that they're atheists is a sense of transition. Um, there is also a group called the Sunday Assembly.
0: Right, atheists going to church. So atheists to speak.
1: going to church, like I'm so used to getting up on Sunday and getting dressed up, I guess I'll keep doing it. Um, <laughs> and they don't talk um, much, they don't talk much about. Uh, religion or atheism, they have other subjects that they deal with it, but it provides that sense of community. I do think eventually, um, let's say that religion were to go away today, I think we can find things to do together that help each other. You know, whether it's a food bank, um, or whether it's helping refugees, or whether it's helping um, illegal aliens um, who are in our country who may be deported. There's a lot of things we can do to work together to create community to help people.
0: I'm speaking with uh, Karen Garst, uh, who is the author of Women Beyond Belief, Discovering Life Without Religion, and uh, owns the website Feminist FaithlessFeminist.com. You have a new book coming out. Talk about that.
1: I do. Well, the first book is Personal Stories. Mm-hmm. So you read that and you go, yep, that's a good role model for me. I can do it. The second book is more persuasive in nature. And I recruited 13 women, many of them who are already atheist authors. Um, Abby Hafer, who's a biology professor, wrote The Not-So-Intelligent Designer. (laughs) Valerie Tirico wrote Trusting Doubt. And this book gives more persuasive arguments. One um, uh, called Owned, Uh, Valerie Tirico wrote All the Things in the Bible um abby i mentioned talked about all the things about biology we know that aren't planned that no i wouldn't have done it that way (laughs) if i were intelligent i wouldn't have done it that way i have two hispanic women who write about the influence on the hispanic community i have an ex-muslim i have two african americans who trace what was in africa and many times there was a female uh queen or divine goddess that they worshipped so they were doubly damaged because they came and there were only male deities and they were slaves uh also have a woman who writes about the jewish faith and how women are treated in that and then finally i have a uh, a woman who's transgender and uh talks about being not only an atheist but being transgender and there's other um articles in there that i haven't mentioned and it is going to be called Women Versus Religion, The Case Against Faith and For Freedom. And that'll probably be out the first of next year. I'm not exactly sure.
0: And you mentioned and Greta Vosper is also a contributor to this program. Greta
1: Vosper, thank you for mentioning that.
0: Greta Vosper has been a guest on this program. For those who uh, know, <laughs> she is the atheist minister from Canada who's just— uh, I think she started on her own now, and the United Church of Canada called her unsuitable, which is such an irony.
1: (laughs) Yes, and you, I believe, mentioned her, and that's how I got connected, and hers is the last essay, and it basically talks to the issue we've talked about, how can churches be in transition?
0: Yeah, because whether we're in or without, we need to be conscious about our legacy of religion and, and moving on to a common goal of equality and dignity and justice for people. Uh-huh. Uh,
1: couldn't have said it better myself.
0: I am so excited to have you here, Karen. Uh, any last words?
1: No, thank you for this opportunity. And uh, I write a blog uh, once a week about women and religion. And if you're interested in writing about something, there's guest guidelines on the website. I'd be happy to have a guest writer.
0: This is The Beloved Community, resources for activism, every second Friday on KBOO. I'm John Schuck. After the break, I speak with Rabbi Brian. His website is Religion Outside the Box. Stay with us. (laughs) This is KBOO. I'm John Shack. You're listening to The Beloved Community. My next guest says he's a modern-day rabbi with John Lennon's inclusivity and a Blues Brothers mission. Welcome, Rabbi Brian, to The Beloved Community. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me here. Religion Outside the Box is your website, and you have a lot of activity on that. Um, uh, spiritual direction, a, a book, uh, newsletters, uh, all kinds of different things that we're, we're going to talk about. Um, and, but first I want to talk about uh, the title, Religion Outside the Box. What, uh, what is the box for you?
2: I, I don't have a brick-and-mortar congregation. I heard from someone, they used the phrase, I have a click-and-mortar that it's it's uh-huh. internet based. That I, uh, God doesn't. If you can define God, it's, it's not God. That uh, there are a lot of. Well, I'll also tell you the the backstory was uh, my wife's late brother used to when they were driving. He would pass a church and he would say with horrible disdain, "Oh, another God box." So <laughs> there's some some part of. Um, W- without the disdain, but this is religion outside the box. This is not in a congregation. This is not within four walls. This is religion um, wherever people are, whatever works for them. And
0: outside of institutions whatsoever you are a rabbi, you are yeah, an ordained rabbi,
2: I am indeed. Uh, and do you do this as an aspect of being an ordained rabbi? or yeah, yeah, this is this is my this is my calling, this is my mission, this is my calling body, if you will, um, is the people for whom organized religion may or may not fit them perfectly. I have a lot of people who are in organized religion, who are members of religion outside the box, and a lot of people who are spiritual but not religious who don't feel uh, fit. And that's a lot
0: of people think of our area in the Northwest, uh, one of the most uh, secular regions uh, in the country. Yeah. Yeah. And so for a lot of people, uh, we'll talk about uh, spirituality outside the box. In fact, my program used to be called Religion for Life, and and, uh, many people objected to it. Uh, They said, religion isn't for life, religion's for death. Oh, gosh, no. (laughs) And so, but that's the... That's the perception. For them, it is. And uh, because they've seen a well, lot of religion that is regarded as, as narrow. Uh, uh, there's as a quote people say
2: as they say, um, religion is something that, that people do to look at what happens after life, and spirituality is what you do to get through life. Well, I don't necessarily agree with the, the the details of the quote, but I get the idea. Or, uh-huh. So I also like to add the word organized, that there's religion... And then there's organized religion. And that, that organized religion is simply a set of beliefs and practices. And as, as I like to say, it's not one size fits all. And I, I believe much more of a um, – there are great things in organized religion. And I, 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 I love my, my tradition. I love many other traditions. But it doesn't necessarily fit people as they are. So religion outside the box is trying to help people figure out what works for them.
0: And, and as you say uh, throughout the website, the point is pretty clear that you're not uh, proselytizing or trying to convince anybody or yeah. say this is what this is the best way to believe or anything like that. It's actually kind of what, – what I get what you're doing, you tell me if I got this right, is break, helping people break down their own barriers to right. find what is significant for well, them.
2: There's, there's a great quote by Rumi who said, your job isn't to find love. It's to find all the reasons you're not accepting love. So re- religion being being somewhat the same is wh- what you, what can you do to have a more religious life? Or if you don't like the word religious, to have a more spiritual life.
0: You grew up in in Manhattan I in uh, New York City. Oh,
2: what was uh, your childhood like? Happy? I don't remember a lot of my childhood, um, uh, but I. I uh, that's a weird question. I, I, you can ask my therapist for that. I. I how am I? Um, it was a fine childhood. I enjoyed it. It was what I knew. And, uh, I got to college, and I thought, oh, my God, this is, there's so much I don't know. And I, I saw the world very, very differently than, than I had in my childhood, and I continued to grow and, and to learn. Strange, yeah, Strange question, John. How was your childhood?
0: It was a happy childhood. Um, um, and the reason I'm asking you that, because part of your website talks about a joyous life. And so um, I'm curious if that has been a part of your all the way growing up, or is that something you discovered later?
2: So I found myself, this is a great, okay, I I get your question. Um, I found myself, I recorded a podcast in 2006, and it was called Complaining About the Cruise. And we had been on a family cruise, and I heard myself, when people were asking me about it afterwards, they said, how was the cruise? and I heard the stories I told, and I was telling stories of all the things that went wrong. And I was telling stories of, like, all the mishaps, which were, of course, funnier stories. But there was this little observer in the back of my head saying, why are you pointing out the flaws? Mm -hmm. And it's taken me a, a, a long time afterwards to go, I don't want to do that. And I, one of my favorite exercises that I've ever done was the 21-day no-complaint challenge, which is exactly what it sounds like. And it's as horrible as it sounds. And you try to go 21 days straight without complaining. And every time you complain, you have to reset the clock and go back to day one. And it took me over two months to go 21 days without complaining. But I did it. And I and I and my life is different. So... Um, So from where my childhood was to where I am, I'm much more blessed today than I was then. In fact, you have an exercise on your
0: website uh, about kind of taking your, it isn't the word, your spiritual temperature is what I had, but I don't think that's exactly it. I have
2: a a spiritual uh, fitness, self-assessment.
0: That's it. And, And part of that is the level of how much... Uh, we look at life and regard it in terms of things to complain about or things to be grateful for. Yeah. And that's really an aspect of spirituality, isn't it? Moving a little bit more, yeah. at least have one more gratitude than the complaint. Is well, that?
2: Well, we try to go with, uh, you know, in, in parenting, we always say that you're, you're supposed to give the kid four praise to one criticism. And just thinking of that, and I, I was a high school teacher for years, and you, anything where you have to correct a child, and you have to say, don't do that, uh, you, you took out the wrong kind of paper, or any correction, and, and to challenge yourself to have four positives for every one negative, it's really quite a, quite a challenge, but oh my goodness, the reward is fantastic.
0: You know, I've had. I'm. I am still in the box in terms of uh, religion, and and it's a wonderful box. I the 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 congregation I have served, and several of them. uh, But that similar kind of thing that I've said to them, and that I learned from someone else, is that whenever you hear someone complain about the church or whatever it is find find people to say three positive things about it yeah, right around yeah. to to change a culture of complaint to a culture of so gratitude there's
2: another one and i'm working on this is that uh, i heard a teacher say um in every complaint in every complaint there's a commitment that if someone's complaining about something if you can take it apart you can see where they're actually committed to the ideal and they want to make it better and i'm i'm this is this is a uh, this is on my Plate of things that I'm still working on is hearing other people's complaints as as good. I'm I'm doing quite well with not complaining myself.
0: Okay, so hearing other people's complaints and then finding a way to say you know to not take it so personally, but also take the what's Wait, true about so it. So
2: my my bride says to me, um, you know, don't wh- why don't you put the the sponge in the sponge holder? I've already told you four times about that, and. If I, And I can do this now because it's not live in my house. When it's live in my house, I'm like, why is she up my buttocks, right? Uh, but now I can go, I can see it because I'm not in the situation going, she has a commitment to our family. She has a commitment to keeping things orderly. She has a commitment to um, making it actually easier for us to find where the sponge is if it's always in the same place. I'm not always so good at in real time yet. I'm not really good at, in real time, finding the commitment in every complaint. But what a great exercise.
0: I'm speaking with Rabbi Brian, also known as Rabbi Brian Zachary Mayer. Uh, lives in Portland, is the uh, creator, the keeper of a religion uh, outside the box. a Modern-day rabbi with John Lennon's spirit inclusivity and a Blues Brothers mission. <laughs> <laughs> That's the headline on the website. So wh-
2: tell me about the mission. Uh, the, the mission is... Well, it depends on who's asking the question. Seeing you're asking the question, I will say that the mission is to help people find and be with the God of their understanding. Now, if somebody else asks the question, I don't use the G-O-D word, and I'll say that it's to help people live a more fulfilled spiritual life, which to me, those are the same thing. But often the G-O-D word will throw people off so much that I I, I won't use that. Um, Another way of putting the mission is to nourish spiritual hunger they're all the same. But depending on the audience, I want to uh, I, I cater to the audience so that it's in the words that they can best hear. You've counseled many people, thousands according to
0: your website. So what is it that you find... Uh, <laughs>
2: thousands according to the website. It's also true. But yes, okay.
0: <laughs> Tell me, what is it that you found that people are looking for or, or what do they need even if they don't know they need it?
2: Ooh, that's a great question. What are people looking for That they don't necessarily know they need um well they know it but they it's it's they don't they don't always act on it they need freedom Mm. freedom so here here's a nice thing to put on a bumper sticker um freedom to be themselves freedom to free themselves from themselves so they can be themselves to get ourselves out of our heads and and out of i also think in we we talked a moment ago about complaining that our society seems to give people status based on how stressed out they are. And what people need is just a, a nice, gentle slap and going, that's not winning. Winning is being the most content person. Winning is being joyous, happy, and free. Winning is, is feeling like the world's going well. I, I'm about to fly to New York City where I grew up, and the to me, New York City, there's there's this ethos in New York that a little bit of stress is good for your life, that it gives you an edge. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's actually not good for your life. That's stress. That's not good. So, yeah, well, New York City,
0: think of that's pretty high... That's where I grew competitive, up. Competitive, yeah, and and that's that's where and you yeah you know, talk about a little bit more about yeah you're growing up you grew you uh, did you go to the synagogue? And...
2: I did. I, so I have to say, my across the street neighbor, John Lennon, lived across the street. So that, that oh was, okay, that gives the John Lennon. All right. But, um, so I'm slightly to the south of John Lennon by a half a block. <laughs> um, so I grew up in New York City to a, a progressive, liberal Jewish family. We did like all the other Jews did, and kind of the Easter and, and Christmas of Judaism of, um, I went to Hebrew school, except when it wasn't convenient, I had a bar mitzvah, but it, 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 it at the, there's a joke that rabbis say is, the reason we do a bar mitzvah for a kid when they're 13 is there's no way we could ever convince a 14 year old to do it. <laughs> so I had a, my bar mitzvah at 13, but it didn't make sense to me, I didn't know what I was doing. Um, and later, when I told my parents, I said, you know, I'm going to apply to rabbinical school, my father literally said, what kind of job is that for a nice Jewish boy? This was not my family's <laughs> ethos. It was this, you know, you should be a lawyer, an accountant, a stockbroker, not not uh, not a rabbi. <laughs> so uh, you how old were you when you went to rabbinical school?
0: 22. Uh, 20- Two twenty-three. Okay, so right away, right out of college, basically, I, I took
2: the requisite year off after college to live at home. Okay, and then and then went to rabbinical school. So you went there. What did uh, what'd you learn? I, I learned, um, I learned how I'm supposed to be a rabbi. I, yeah, I learned by the book. Here's here the this is how you learned we, the box. Yeah, yeah, which is great stuff. But you know, like with any artist you have to learn how to paint classically until you can discover your own way of doing things. And I, I remember my, my senior sermon, I said that in, in religion, what we, what we have been doing in Judaism is that we've flipped the two priorities and we've made priority one, helping people be Jewish and priority two, helping people find holiness. And I so we have to have it the other way around. We have to have priority one, helping people have fulfilled spiritual lives and priority two is getting them to read in Hebrew. And one of my classmates, Scott, um, I remember he said, Brian, that's a great idea, but how do you do it? And I remember saying, um, I have no idea, but I'll find out. And, yeah. and, and it's taken me, you know, I've been outside the box for 10 years already.
0: You know, it's, it's interesting. As I was musing about my theological training, um, the people that we read about, you know, the, 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 the famous ones, mm-hmm moses uh throughout history Mm -hmm. um they were pretty outside the box kind of people i mean they had a lot of fascinating things to say Mm -hmm. and then we've just boxed them sometimes (laughs) (laughs) with religion we've kind of you know we've made it less interesting than our
2: uh forebears were yeah it's safer You know, we all want to be safe, but, you know, as they say, a ship in a harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are built for.
0: And isn't that it, safety? Isn't that what we've got to kind of help people um, take a little risk? Is that is that part of being yeah. be a little vulnerable here? That uh, perhaps our box has made us safe, but that's also and that's a good thing. We can got safety, but on the other hand,
2: it's constricted us. And there's no life inside the box. It's life is always you know if you look in biology, life is always on the border between two uh, ecospheres. It's it's life is on the outside, on the edges. That's that's where that's where it's
0: happening. Rabbi Brian is my guest. Uh, religion Outside the Box is his website, rotb.org, where he does a lot of things. Uh, one of the things is, is a book that uh, you wrote uh, that is called My Fun Theology Workbook, Finding Out What the God of Your Understanding Wants from You. Tell me a little bit about this book.
2: Well, uh, this comes after doing a lot, uh, much work with people and helping them figure out their theologies. I find adults, you know, uh, many adults have about a fourth grade understanding of religion. And as my friend Larry says, there's nothing wrong with a fourth-grade understanding of religion as long as you're in the fourth grade. And I, I want to help people to, to expand their, their views, expand their ideas of what God is. And most of what we understand about God isn't necessarily things that we were taught. They're things we picked up in our culture. And I, I found um, that mostly I have to help people unlearn what they think they know. And, and that, that's where the, the book comes from, is from my, my work with individuals. And as I, I like to joke, this is the best theology workbook on the market. And, of course, also the worst. It is the only theology workbook on the market. It is uh, filled with exercises and things to think about. Um, and it's, it's uh, fantastic. I don't, in the book, ever tell anyone what they should do. This is what God wants from you. But I help people to figure out for themselves... What does the God of their understanding want? What does the God of their understanding even mean?
0: Perhaps the culture or what people have inherited is is either a punitive God or, as you mentioned, I think, or a Santa Claus kind of God or... Something that, uh, or the what is it? The vice principal? Yeah,
2: yeah. So there are the four classic notions of God: um, the authoritarian God, which is like Zeus; the benevolent God, which is like Santa Claus; the critical God, which is like a, a high school vice principal; or the distant God, which is the Great Clockmaker, or the God's not even around. And and just to notice that this is the God that we are talking about, and then to go, but that doesn't make sense to me. And I, I really like to empower people. Also, to be messy in their theologies, uh, this was for me a huge moment when when I realized i didn't have there are people who are smarter than me in the world, and they haven't figured this stuff out and once I said, "Well, if they haven't figured it out, I don't have to figure it perfectly out either. Theologically, all my ducks don 't line up, but I 'm okay with that, and I want to encourage other people to you don't have to have your God stuff completely mapped out be working on it. Have, have a relationship with the God of your understanding. Have a relationship with your idea that God is your highest ideals. And how are you going to live those highest ideals? To introduce to people the idea of predicate theology, of that God is a verb, that we, we God in the world. And if you think that God is your highest ideals, it's a word that we use to, to mean our, our highest aspirations. How are you living your life to, to be your highest aspiration? Some people have left
0: the idea of God altogether and said, uh, God knows? doesn't make sense. I'm just going to leave it behind. Um, and, uh, and that's okay, too. Uh, but there is a sense in which, I mean, it's okay, whatever, wherever you are is wherever you are. Yeah. Uh, what advantage have you discovered in retaining God language?
2: I think it's like if you're in a relationship with someone and you're not talking about a topic... You're not in. There's a hole. There's a void, and and I want us. I want us liberals. Uh, I want progressive Christian progressive Christians, progressive Jews. I want us to reclaim the word God, because the people who are using it are using it. I don't want to say wrong, but they're not using it. They're using it in such a limited idea. And the notion of God, you know, in, in, in Judaism, we never write out the word God. And we hold that you can't define what God is. You can only define what God isn't because the idea of God is transcendent. And when you get that God is beyond word, beyond anything, and you think about the people who are, who are so certain about God, I, they, I'm certain that they're wrong.
0: Yeah. So there is a, a sense in which it's not good. To just give hand over the language because there I are think, struggles with it.
2: I think we need to reclaim it. I think we need uh-huh. to examine it. Go why why you're sure these people aren't using it right? But the same way that, um, the same way that uh, minority groups will reclaim words, I want us to reclaim the word God. I, there's nothing wrong with the word. It's a lovely word. It's three letters long. You know, it's a, it's a, <laughs> as George Carlin would say, it's it's fine. It's just letters. It's a, it's just a sound. Why can't we use it?
0: And uh, and the idea of spiritual growth is really expanding what those three letters
2: can mean. And to understand for ourselves what those mean to us, yeah, to expand, what does that mean for us? And if you say, "I will not use those words," I will not. What you 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 boy, you're cutting cutting off a lot. So,
0: how did spirituality evolve for you? Is that a, how did how did you kind of? If, 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 you're talk just, about,
2: if you're just tuning in, John Shuck <laughs> is asking Rabbi Brian questions that don't make sense to the rabbi. What, how does spirituality <laughs> evolve? I don't understand How the did
0: you evolve? How did you come to a sense? Okay. What, 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 has okay. Been your, what have been the people in your life? What's been the events in your life?
2: Um, I'd say first I'd start with Euclid and math. And I love logic i I taught math for seven years i'm 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 certified at the highest levels to teach mathematics to students i i have a a logical rational brain and i use that thoroughly and um but that only goes so far um the rational side of life is great but it's not fulfilling rational if you're rational you're eating you're not dining if you're rational you're you're looking but you're not seeing. If, you, if it's just rational, you're not living. You're, 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 there's, there's so, you know, it's what changes a, a house to a home. Ra- rational is good but it's not great. And at some point I saw the limits. I mean, love is not rational and, and joy is not rational. So I saw the limits of logic and I, I got to college and I saw people who had joy. And I thought, oh, I want some of that, and um, and religion is filled with people who have had ecstatic, joyous uh, lives, and I, I want to emulate that. I want to be a part of that too. So logic, uh, I think, logic led me to be more and more spiritual. And you know, if you talk to a, a quantum physicist, they'll they'll let you know that the more they understand, the less they know. And I, I think there's something in that. It's a spiritual experience to recognize
0: the uh, immensity of the cosmos. Yeah,
2: or how small a molecule is and go under that and under that. And it's, it's when you see it with new eyes and you see it afresh, that's spiritual. That's, that's beautiful.
0: Rabbi Brian, my guest, have you had uh,
2: uh, people in your life who, are, who you might call your, your spiritual mentors? Um, unfortunately, some of them are the people who annoy me the most. Ah, okay, <laughs> <laughs> but I've also had the positives. I've had uh, my friend Larry. He's a Disciples of Christ minister, and he is one of the kindest people I've ever met in my life. He just he's got a kind heart, and he and I. I thought um, it's a quote by uh, by Saint Augustine, which was "Si ille cor non ego." If he can do it, why can't I? And I saw Larry being as kind as he is, and I thought, if he can do that. Why can't I be that kind, too? And, and there are other people who are filled with light and joy. The poet um, Hafiz, I, I don't know him personally, but he's written books that, that I feel like I know him and I want to be more like him. I want to have his kind of relationship with the divine, where he and God are just laughing together.
0: I was introduced to Hafiz by uh, Daniel Ladinsky, yeah. re- uh, who translated uh, much of his works. And they're talking about the, the joy or the, God laughing. at. Yeah, those are real humorous ways of yeah. pointing.
2: so he's a spiritual teacher, mm-hmm. although, um, although we haven't met. <laughs> That's right. You
0: have been doing spiritual direction for, for some time with people. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that, how that get going, and, and what, are, what are the things you do?
2: Um, people... Are stuck in their lives and looking for help, um, and they they understand the intellectual, they understand the emotional, and they understand the physical. If intellectual, you can go to school and you can you can look at uh, books, and the emotional, you can go talk to a therapist, and the physical, you can go to the gym and go to a doctor, and but the spiritual is well, how do you get help in all the area, all the things that aren't those three, and um, I've been fortunate that people have. Called upon me to help them, and I, I will say to them, I don't have the answers, but I'm quite a good teacher, and I'm a, I've got a compassionate heart, and I'm glad to ask the questions with you, and help you to discover for yourself. And it's, it's, um, it's akin. Uh, it, it works differently with different people. I have some people who, I'll work assiduously for six weeks, and some people I've been working on and off for for years um, because every person is different. It's not a one size fits all spiritual direction. It's who are you and what, what are your needs? And let's figure, I'm working with a woman right now and we're trying to figure out, she said she, uh, after talking for a while, she needs a, a, a theology transplant.
0: Rabbi Brian has been my guest. Check out his website. R-O-T-B dot O-R-G, religion outside the box. Rabbi, thank you uh, for being with me today. Oh, John, thank you very much. This is a pleasure. You've been listening to the Beloved Community Resources for Activism every second Friday at 9 a.m. on KBOO. I'm John Schach. I host a weekly program called Progressive Spirit. For details, find the website, progressivespirit.net. Be well.